It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Everything Will Be Okay. This podcast was created to complement my book of the same name, and its mission is to provide advice, wisdom, and comfort to young people and maybe people not so young. As we all know, embracing a new chapter in your life or pivoting from a dream that you've held on to for as long as you can remember, well, that can be intimidating, regardless of what stage of life you're in. But with the right tools, mentors, some faith, over time, you will find your way. And in this third season, we've heard from New York Times bestselling authors, the former Miss Rodeo America, Fox News personalities, financial literacy gurus, and that doesn't even cover every episode. On that note, let's take a look back at a few conversations from season three. Let's start at the beginning with the CEO and co-founder of the Selfless Love Foundation, Ashley Brown. So you wanted to do something with foster care, um, and the Selfless Love Foundation is what uh, you started. You are the founder and the Mm -hmm. CEO. Can you tell us a little bit just about the scope and scale of the foster care challenges and how big that need is in the country today? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a crisis. So there's over 100,000 children in foster care right now that are waiting to be adopted. Um, every single year, there's over 20,000 children that age out of foster care. Um, and almost half of them become homeless within the first two years. How many? Say that again. So every year, there's about 20,000 children that age out of foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means on their 18th birthday, there's no family identified for them and they simply age out of care. So it's no wonder to you know imagine why half of them or almost half of them are homeless within the first two years. I mean, wow. I think about where I was at 18 years old mm-hmm. and I had the most amazing family, but if I still wouldn't have had their support for me to lean on you know, and have guidance, I mean, these kids have none of that. Hmm. And the foster care system, tell us a little bit about that. Like who becomes a foster parent or how do you end up in foster care? How long are people in foster care? Yeah, I mean, it it absolutely varies. Um, So when a child enters foster care, um, the first thing that they try to do is reunite them with their family, Mm -hmm. right? So can we make this family come back together so that they can get their child back? Um, it can take a very long time. Um, it's just dependent on the court, um, when a family's rights is officially terminated. So until a parent's, I'm sorry, a parent's rights is officially terminated until that happens, a child is not available for adoption. So they're just sitting in foster care until they go back to their family or the rights are terminated and they can be adopted. Oh, and I know that, and, and is there an attempt by most courts to try to keep families intact. Absolutely. It's the number one priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and, it, you know, it's it's difficult because I understand that being the goal. But I also understand that, you know, 
if we truly know this is not a good family, then let's speed this up so that we can find a family as quick as possible for these children. Because the facts are the facts. The longer a child sits in foster care, the more trauma that they're going to have. And also the older that they get and the older that they get, the less likely they are to get adopted. Um, and that's something I'm really proud about with the work that we do. So not only do we help find forever families for foster children, but the children that we're helping are truly the hardest to place kids. So these are the kids that are teenagers. They have medical needs. Um, they are a part of a sibling group. Um, we're even helping find families for 17-year-olds. I mean, how life-changing is that for a 17-year-old right before they age out to give them the gift of family? I've continued to follow Ashley and her incredible work. She's become a friend, and I'm very excited to see what she does next. Foster care and the care of people who want to adopt is something that we should really all focus on as a country. It is that important. I also had the pleasure of speaking with my dear friend and colleague and author of Saved, A War Reporter's Mission to Make It Home, Fox News' Benjamin Hall. The storytelling in the book is incredible, and that's what I wanted to make sure that on this podcast people had a chance to know. It's not... The story is only is not only just about what happened on March 14th, 2022, and that and the rest of that story. The stories leading up to it and how you became who you are are really important. And you write about that experience a little bit after that. You said, I understood immediately that I was a changed man. I learned that I could control my fear, even bury it, and keep moving forward into danger. I learned that the hellishness of Misrata was not enough to stop me from going to combat zones, and I learned that my normal, civilized life would never be the same again. No, this is who I was now. And I noted that because that was at that point. And then you and I had had an opportunity when you were at the State Department as our correspondent there. You'd only been there a few weeks, and Bill Hemmer had a day off, and we did a couple of days of you being the fill-in for Bill, and we co-anchored together. And I thought, too, like, this is where Ben's going to be now at the mm. State Department. What was it like getting the call asking if you would want to go to Ukraine? <laughs> you know, the, one of the reasons we moved to the State Department, we're moving to D.C., was because Alicia and I, my wife and I, had spoken about the next step, that I couldn't keep going to war zones, that uh, it was time to be a bit more responsible. And so we moved to the State Department. We were moving to D.C. I'd, I'd been living there for a few months. But... You know, I traveled with Blinken um, when he met with Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and I'd seen those last few attempts at diplomacy to see if they could stop them invading. So we knew it wasn't going to happen and that Russia was going to invade. But I knew I wanted to be out there. I knew that they were going to invade and I knew that was going to be the biggest conflict that I had seen. And that's what we do. We tell the stories where they mo matter most. And so I told Alicia, I said, I'm not going to make the call. I won't push to go. If it comes, if they ask me to go, we'll go. And so for a few days, I just sat there. No one called. <laughs> and I was thinking, You're like I, checking I, the phone. Is this working? Right. I, I hope someone <laughs> calls me. And they did. And they called and they asked if I wanted to anchor a show from out there. And um, could I make the plane that evening? But I had to speak to Alicia about it. And, you know, Alicia, she was never going to say no. She knew how important it was to me. And that she knew that the job was important. So, but I know speaking to her since then that... Um, she probably, you know, maybe I should, well, who knows? Should I have gone? Shouldn't I have gone? Right. I don't regret right. going for a second, but um, I was pleased to be going. I was pleased to be covering the story. 
Tell me about the story. The other thing I marked here is the videos you would make for your children with the hedgehogs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started that before, well before this, the attack, because I was traveling a lot for work. We were always on the road. And I wanted to always send the videos about where I was and what I was doing. And I started taking little toys that they had with me, these little miniature hedgehogs. And... Um, Everywhere I went, I would take, a, take out a video and they would go off on some adventure and little hedgehogs would do something. They'd be with me. They'd be sitting on the plane with me. And um, when I went to hospital after the attack, that's what I continued doing. And they were sort of the way... You have which, them in your pocket when you were in the hospital? Yeah, I had them by my bedside every single day. And they were sort of a way in which I could tell my daughters what was going on without having to show them all of my injuries and myself so the hedgehogs would pass on these stories and they've become a real part of uh, of our lives together and the, the hedgehogs go wherever i go now but on page 99 you talk about you and pierre visiting a children's hospital mm. and one of the hedgehogs remains yeah i mean actually it's it's amazing it was a couple of days before the attack pierre and i were filming in this ukrainian hospital and all the children had been evacuated, but down the end of one long corridor, there was a light on in a room, and just when we were going to leave, I said, I said, Who, who's in that room? Why is that one room on? And most of the lights were in the hospital or off to save electricity, so just one room at the end with light coming out of the door, and I said, can I go and have a look? And there was one baby in there, this young little baby, who they'd called Prince Charlie, who had been... Uh, had su been a surrogate and the, mm. he'd had some a couple of medical issues and so the British parents who were going to take him refused to take him so this child was only a couple of weeks old had nowhere to go had no paperwork and he was just stuck there and Pierre and I filmed this baby we got hundreds of requests from our viewers that night about who um, about if anyone could ad adopt him um, but in the same hospital, we also met this girl who had almost lost her leg in an explosion. And for the first time ever, I wanted to give her something. And I wanted to give her one of the hedgehogs. And uh, I'd never thought about doing it before. And I said, look, this is my my daughter's favorite toy. And I just know they'd want you to have it. Her mother had been killed as well in the attack. Mm. And I just remember, so here we are a couple of days before the attack itself. And I was surrounded, A, by this baby, A, by this girl who had lost everything. And I just wanted to give her something, something. Uh, that one of the three hedgehogs is what I, what I left her. It's amazing. And we don't know what happened to Prince Charlie. Prince Charlie is safe. It, oh, <laughs> tell me more. I can't tell you very much. Okay. Um, but Prince Charlie is safe. He's got a family. He's outside Ukraine and he's been adopted. Um, so, yeah, I, I went back and looked for him too. Wow. Because we had talked about possibly helping him ourselves. Wow. Um, because of a whole lot of adoption rules, there's nothing we can't say very much. But he, Prince Charlie, uh, I'm is totally blown away. Safe, I know, I know. And Pierre was thinking of adopting. Prince I read Charlie that. Too. I know. And he he didn't have children of his own. No, correct? right. He didn't. Um, oh my gosh. No, I know. Isn't that this is the best ne news? Never made. We didn't make it into the book. I only recently found out. So. Uh, and the good news is, Prince Charlie is safe. He's wow. well. He's recovering. No story has been more inspiring than that of Benjamin Hall, who was truly using his life and all that's happened to him in order to make all of us realize what we have, this gift of life, and how we can best live it. We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. 
It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Next, I connected with a young woman who walked us through how to reclaim our money mindset. Musician and co-host of The Ramsey Show, Jade Warshaw. Is it correct that you and Sam had $280,000 in student loan debt? Yes, indeed. How does that, that how did that correct. get added up in that Whew. fashion? Um, so my husband, most of the student loan debt came from my husband's side of the equation. Uh, he went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, private school, super expensive. Turns out some of the biggest musicians of our time, John Mayer, lots of folks. Um, so started out there, went there for two years and basically exceeded expectation. A lot of his professors were like, hey, you don't need to go here. So he moved to Tennessee. Um, just to study with some musicians, but his mom was like, hey, if you're there, you've, you must go to school. A lot of parents say that. Um, and so kind of against what he wanted to do, he went to school, again, another out of state school, racked up tuition there as well. Um, and so that's kind of how it happened. Plus my student loans, I don't know if you have gotten wind of this, but I went to school on a full presidential scholarship and a full volleyball scholarship. And um, I had all of my school paid for and I sat down in the financial aid office and they said, hey, Jade, you're gonna need money, spending money. Like you're gonna need new clothes. You're gonna wanna go out after the game. Um, you need to take some loans to cover that. I mean, you don't want to miss out on mm. the college experience. And I thought, you know, here I am 18, 19, 20, and then 21. And I'm going, yes, great idea. I Sign me up. And so we both just made, you know, I tell people all the time, Dana, it's so hard to not blame other people for the decisions you make because it's so easy to sit here like the want is to go oh it was our parents and those those people at the student loan you know office they shouldn't have done it but you know what i signed my name on the dotted line Mm -hmm. and my husband signed his name on the dotted line and we were those people who you know it takes six months for your loans to become due and then you can defer them and you can forbear them and we were those people that did that so two hundred eighty thousand dollars of student loans yes there were reasons that we got into that but i refuse to make excuses about that mm-hmm. i signed up for it i had to pay it and was there a point when you and sam realize that you're in financial trouble i guess is the best way for me to maybe put mm-hmm. it I, I just i have a lot of financial anxiety yeah um that i'm not gonna be able to pay my bills like like I used to pay my student loan and my car payment three months in advance. Like I'd pay three months worth just yes, to make sure I because you say I'd that. be afraid uh-huh. that 
on that third month, for some reason, I wouldn't have any money. I don't know why I thought yes. that, but that was kind of way that, that I dealt with it. And so did you and Sam have a moment where you thought we are really needing to do something? Absolutely. I mean, what I that like what you're saying wholeheartedly. I grew up where money was a lot of tension. There was a lot of tension around money, a lot of stress around money, um, a lot of control around money, to be honest with you. And so mm -hmm. I tell this this I've had it story um, where Sam and I were driving down the road and I'm just going to be. Can I just be totally? Candid yes, with that's you? what we do here. Yeah, I, I'm driving down the road and credit card companies like debt collectors mm -hmm. had been calling my phone all morning and i remember saying to my husband pull the car like pull the car over and he's like okay like what's going on ironically we pulled over behind the alleyway of a bank parking lot and we're just sitting there and i'm like crying and he's like what is wrong i said we cannot go on like this like mm. I cannot have these people calling our phone. Like we need to make a change. We can't live like this. I refuse to live like this. I did this as a child. I felt this anxiety. I felt this strain. I cannot live like this. And you know, he's looking at me like, okay, I know, uh, yeah, we gotta do something. And it was just like, from there on, it was game on. I mean, we had probably one of the deepest conversations we ever had in that parking lot. And it was like, we've got to get serious about this. We cannot lollygag. We cannot play patty cake with this debt. We have got to sacrifice far more than what we've been sacrificing. And if we want any semblance of the life that we say we want, we have got to make changes and it starts today. And so, yeah, that's a big part of it. I think you've got to have that moment where you um, hold yourself accountable and take a long look at yourself in the mirror and go, no more blaming, no more, no more excuses. Because all the reasons that we said were like this, and if I'd learned this in school, maybe it'd be different. No, after a while, those reasons become excuses. And you've really just got to take the bull by the horns and just change. This is another new friend of mine. We have kept in touch. I didn't know that Jade was a Whitney Houston impersonator. She has since been on America's Newsroom several times, and this woman, she's something special, and I hope that you will follow her as well. This next conversation was a real treat for me. I got to speak with one of my best friends, the Chief Corporate Affairs and Marketing Officer at WeWork, Lauren Fritz. You talked about intention and intentionality in terms of making things okay. You had a plan, and also you're an educated woman in America who's loved by her family. <laughs> and you have worked at Fox News for all these great people. You work for Governor Christie. You know all these folks that are going to help you to your next step. So your next step is this amazing shoot to the moon startup <laughs> called WeWork. Yes. And that it was new in concept. Yes. And tell us a little bit about that time and what the company is and where it is today. I um so at that time it was really not known and I okay. I will say that people now thinking like are you kidding? But it really wasn't largely. I think there were a lot of customers, a lot of members we call them um, in our spaces. So largely though it was you know, unknowns. So that was the opportunity. It was so much fun. I mean, my whole career in New York City, people had a thought or knew about Fox News or Chris Christie. Um, and this was something different. Like, I thought I could really help showcase the special um, ability that WeWork has to provide space to all different companies, all types of people around the world, I mean, to connect and, and collaborate. And so, you know, that experience building up that brand introducing it to different um, companies, leaders around the world. It was 
was so much fun. Um, and then, of course, you know, like a lot of different companies, especially startups, there was, you know, a bump in the, a bump yeah, in the there road. Yeah, there was a major, like, 8.0 on the Richter scale <laughs> yes. eruption um, yes. as the founder of the company left. And... You had a decision to make. Yeah. And I do think, you stay or do you go? And I think, you know, the thing that it goes back to the people, I really loved who I worked with and I really believed in what we were all doing. And I always thought, you know, there was a lot of headlines about the, you know, the top or certain people, but it was everyone that worked there that really made up that place. And so at the time, I everyone was leaving. I mean, they were either leaving or it was, it was crazy. And a lot of people on the outside called me and said, hey, are you looking for a job? Like, this is, this is available and this is available. And I was like, oh, maybe I should be leaving. Um, and I, you know, was back and forth about like, what do I do? What is the right thing to do? You're conflicted with what people are telling you. And I called you and I said, I, don't know, I think I should leave. I have this opportunity or this thing. And, and, you know, you simply said to me, but what if you stayed? Yeah. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with staying for a turnaround. Which you had a better insight as to what that could look like than me, yeah. but you, of course, there was but you were in the in middle of a you were in the middle of a s storm. I will call. There it. was something in your voice or in your you know in your guidance that I was like, what if I stayed? I mean, right. you said to me, there could be opportunity to grow, but there will definitely be opportunity to learn. And like, what's better than that? Yeah. And so. Both, I, I would say. Had That's happened. amazing because then, I mean, you had to do some pretty hard things. Yeah. I, you would probably won't want to talk about it, but I will. There, when you have a major earthquake like that in a company, um, there were a lot of layoffs, mm -hmm. and that was difficult. And you, at your young age, you had to muster up all of that courage, and you had to let people know that they were losing their job. Mm. I always think about that. I'm like, where were all the guys? <laughs> they were like, Lauren, over to you. And you did it. And you've also now built a team where you um, are overseeing so much. You have the chief marketing officer, chief communications officer, and you're an integral part of the executive team of a company that is now also dealing with the second earthquake that comes along, and that's COVID. Mm -hmm. And how do you see that? shaking out now. Joe Biden has said that the pandemic is over on May 11th. Does it feel like it to you? I think what's interesting is that, you know, for so many years, people talked about the future of work or what it could look like. And now I think what we're trying to find is the balance of what people want to take out of that time when we were at home. And you know, what's, what's really interesting when you read about in the Wall Street Journal is internationally, people are back together in the office because they don't have this thought about the office like Americans have brought towards like the thought of the office. So simply, I think internationally, and I'm not just like blanketly, but we're, as mm -hmm. the trends are saying, like, they have found more of a balance in their day to day of what work and life, what, what that work before the pandemic or after? before the pandemic. OK, so I think a return to the office or what this might seem like doesn't feel as harsh as Americans who over the last few years have really been in overdrive. And I think felt like instead of people keep saying this is a sort of like, you know, anti office experience right now. But in fact, it's not that it's just that I think Americans are looking for more ownership of their time. Mm -hmm. um, but what's so interesting and what's 
always constant um, in periods like this is is change. And, you know, this is where the new ideas come. I mean, as Americans, like through any sort of economic crisis or any sort of shift in the way we do things, new ideas come up. I mean, WeWork, Uber, like Airbnb, all of those things were formed around the 10, over 10 years ago around the same sort of tumultuous economic time. And so I think, you know, we could sit here and we could think about all the things that are like crazy right now, but we could also wonder what new ideas are coming. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what's so exciting to be a place that could foster those new ideas. On The Five, Greg Gutfeld makes fun of me for how many times I bring up the Fritz family, especially Lauren Fritz. But you know what? Once you take a listen to all that Lauren has to offer and see what kind of person she is, I think you'll realize why she is one of my very best friends in the whole world. Then I spoke with a man whose wisdom and guidance landed him on the New York Times bestselling authors list for his book, Start, Stay, or Leave. That's the host of Sunday Night in America on the Fox News Channel and the Trey Gowdy podcast, Trey Gowdy. I remember at a Minute Mentoring event one time, this young woman raised her hand and she asked a question, when do you know it's time to leave a job? And the four expert panelists that I had, I shouldn't say experts, but they were the mentors, all the panelists said, wow, that's a great question. And really had to think it through. And each of us had kind of a stumbled our way through a bit of an answer. One of the answers I'll never forget was from Evan Ryan, who said that when she was asked to go from the White House office when she worked for Vice President Biden to then go to the State Department, she was quite comfortable. She loved her job working for Vice President Biden, had no plans to leave. It never occurred to her to pursue something else. And this opportunity came to her. And she went and found one of her mentors and That woman said, well, when you go to work every day, do you feel like you're just about to drown? Like, is the water line just under your chin? And she said, oh, no, 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 not at all. And the woman said, well, then you have to leave. And that was her (laughs) advice. And I always kind of think about that. Like, I feel like I'm drowning every day. So I'm I'm good on that one. But I did love how you write in the book about making this decision on, on when is a good time to leave a job. And it's okay to stay sometimes. You know, it, it, it's, um, it is the least exciting part. It's almost like a resignation that um, because the newness and fresh starts and, you know, moving to a new town, the, what I found, at least in my own life, is when I was tempted to leave a job or tempted to move to a new house or a new neighborhood, what I was really trying to change was going to follow me because it was me. That was what my dissatisfaction was. It wasn't with the work. It wasn't with the number of bedrooms or bathrooms. There was something that I found wanting in my own life. And I thought a change of scenery would benefit me. Uh, I loved being in the courtroom, Dana. I loved it, loved it, loved it. But sometimes what you love extracts too heavy a toll whether it's physically, spiritually, emotionally, and it's just not constructive to stay. And the other thing, the order I've gotten, I wish I knew this when I was you know, in my 20s or 30s. If you have an idea of what you want to be, and I want to be careful saying this, the reality is very few people are going to remember me when I'm gone. Very, very, very few people. So I don't know that I can control the quantity, but I can control what they remember, the quality of the thought. 
So what do I want people, the two or three people that five years after I'm gone say, you know, I miss that old man. What are they going to think? And is this change going to get me closer to that desired kind of closing argument, that summation? Money is not, you know, you have to have a certain amount of it. Um, that is, uh, at least for me, not not the right reason to make decisions on whether or not to stay or leave or start something else. I like variety. Um, I'm really lucky right now I get to think about sports one minute. I get to think about politics one minute. I get to talk to you about books. So that is appealing at this stage of life. The staying where you are, I mean, Dana, have you ever, have you ever like wanted a job or applied for a job and you lacked experience? That's what they told you. Okay. And I hear that a lot from some of these younger people that come to me, like they'll be very frustrated. They definitely feel they're ready to move on after two years to like a new job. But every job that they think they want to get requires four to five years of experience. So they feel like they're in this gap where experience gap, I guess, where they're champing at the bit to get going. And yet they can't get through their resume through whatever algorithms there are now, or for people to take them seriously because that time frame hasn't exactly fit their lives. And and as boring as it sounds, the only way to get that experience that they say you need is oftentimes to stay. And and it's not, I I mean, I've, I've gotten to where when I look at resumes, if I see a lot of movement, even if it is like um, incrementally higher movement, it catches my attention that they're it's almost like we want people to be ambitious, but not overtly so mm-hmm. almost covertly ambitious. <laughs> and there's something to be said for not leaving at every perceived better opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, consistency, dependability, commitment. Those are all laudable characteristics that you really can only get by staying. I have recommended Start, Stay, or Leave more than just about any other advice book that I've ever suggested, especially good for decision-making. And he's just an all-around great American. This next guest doesn't hold back and is a trailblazer in politics. Let's revisit my conversation with former senior counsel to President Trump and author of Here's the Deal, Kellyanne Conway. Tell us about your a moment for you when you went from staffer to being more in front. It was a few different times in my career, but having that heart of the staffer, you know, when I interned for Jack Kemp, for example, in his last congressional term in 1988, 87, 88, Dana, People, you know, then we had fax machines, we had copy machines, there was no internet, Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. <laughs> and uh, people would ask me to make copies, they'd ask me to like be a courier for different things. Some people really resented that. You can see even at the staff level and certainly at the intern level, they resented that. I learned early on to read what they were asking me to copy. It, it wasn't off limits. And so I'd read every word. And if 10 people had asked me to make copies that day or curry things around or look for typos, I feel like I was the only person in the office who had read everybody's stuff. Right. So you develop, uh, you, you start to learn and you listen. And when you're asked, do you have any questions or what do you 
you think of that, you better be ready for that. So I think I was developing those leadership skills by being a staffer. And just as is the case with you, you don't know when you're going to be thrust forward, but you better learn how to say yes. Here's my advice to young people. I say it all the time. Learn to say the word yes more and accept the word no more. You will be rejected. You will be in a failing relationship or you won't get that seat in a college or a graduate school. You won't get the promotion at work. You won't get the job you really could taste and that you thought you had killed it in the interview and that you deserved and you worked hard for. You got to dust yourself off and move on and not be bitter and not second guess. But you can't be saying the word no. You have to accept the word no. If you're the one who keeps saying no, hey, can anybody stay a couple extra hours tonight? Hey, can anybody work on the weekend? Would you mind flying to St. Louis? next week for document discovery. If you're the person who keeps saying no and is seen as unreliable, then they'll stop asking you. I think it only takes two times. I, I believe it. They, they say Mark is unreliable and I would go a step farther. Often the crisis takes care of itself. It gets solved long before you have to go to St. Louis or stay all weekend. And yet you get the credit as the person who raised her hand and said, yes, I'll stay. How do I help? Put me in coach, please. And you get the credit for doing that. And yes, you get your weekend back anyway. So it's that I think for me, it was starting my own business. So I started my own polling company on June 1st, 1995. I was 28 years old. It's half my life ago. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm so glad I did it. And I think part of it was, even though my family, nobody went to college, nobody went to law school like I did, but I felt that they gave me an example of being an entrepreneur. And I, I also felt that only I knew the priorities I would have later on to be a wife and a mother. And I, I looked around the practice of law at the time in the early 90s in Washington, D.C., Dana, and I thought, it looks like a thankless profession for a young woman who may want to be on the partner track, but also take some time off to have children. And so I looked at the three female partners in the law firm where I was a summer associate and eventually got a job. And I thought, this is not for me. And that's okay. So I went out on my own. But, um, but I have to say, you don't just become an entrepreneur overnight. You do it after you've failed a few times and after you've had setbacks. And I've learned much more from my failures. Uh, You have to learn patience. The other thing I learned, and this is particularly for women, if I may, I learned that there's plenty of room for passion in your work, but not a ton of room for emotion. And you have to learn early on the difference between being emotional and being passionate. Mm. And I don't mean to say that just to women, but I think that we don't want to play into some of the stereotypes that we're more emotional or we're more indecisive. You know what? Be decisive. Stand your ground state something. People would ask me to do something as a burgeoning leader. Can you do this? And I'd say, yes, I can. And then I'd say, oh boy, I got to figure this out now. (laughs) But that's my whole point about saying yes. Um, Good old fashioned hard work, great mentors who expected both, um, you know, who were kind and nurturing, but also demanding and direct. And you need both. And I think a little bit of good luck like you and I have both had. And that's really the non-secret secret. I love her views on motherhood. Her advice just rolls off the tongue. Has anybody had a better way with words than Kellyanne Conway on this podcast? I thought it was a fantastic conversation and liked re-listening to it myself. More to come right after this. Artificial intelligence has solidified its mark in our society from the increase in deep fakes across the Internet to the influence of chat GPT. Joanna Stern, an Emmy award-winning journalist for the documentary Eternal, a tech quest to live forever, joined me this season to provide insight on how to adjust to an AI-influenced society. 
technology has changed so much. And how do you wrap your head around how quickly things have changed, even maybe from the 90s to 2012 and then from 2012 to today? It seems remarkably fast. So fast. But one of the things that I love doing, I do a weekly newsletter for the journal called Tech Things. And it was actually the the idea came, the name came from the fact that like everything is a tech thing now, right? We, our cars are tech things, our homes, the things we put in our homes, everything around us is a tech thing. But one of the fun things I do in that newsletter is the end of the newsletter, I have a section called the throwback thing. And that is an old piece of tech and people write in and they send their old pieces of tech, whether it be, we, we haven't actually had a fax machine yet. So if you would submit that, that would be great. If you want <laughs> okay. to that is whether you have your old fax machine you can take a picture of it um but people submit everything from their first digital cameras to their first car phone to their first calculator it was a digital calculator and all of these things what's interesting every week that we get them and we put them in the newsletter it's there's still some tie-in to today like the idea that but for instance, we got one a couple of weeks ago about a car phone, right? And this idea about this was this big step along the journey of mobile phones that we could have the phone in our car, right? This was before, like, you, I don't know if you ever had one of these. I remember growing up, my dad had one. It was like, it was in the console of the car, right? You would, it was like corded. It was like built right in. And this was like the first step to us taking calls, not out of our house, not on a pay phone. Mm-hmm. And today we still have this like huge focus of technology in the car, right? How can we do more in the car? And one of my favorite things is to put together some of those themes where it doesn't seem, it seems so like there's been so much progress. And of course there has been, but some of the core ideas go back to some of the just real first start of technology in our lives. Even if you look at something, I'm working on a piece right now, looking back at the iPod and how (laughs) Apple grew the iPod business, right? Who is it? I think it might be Kennedy. I think it might be Kennedy. Um, I think it's her. She she doesn't want to give up her iPod. Because it has all of her music on there and all the playlists. I think it's her. And she's like holding on to it, like making, trying to make sure that it never dies because she likes it so much. I also well, like she's those. not alone. Yeah. I heard from so many people last year, Apple killed the iPod. They yes. said, sorry, we're not making the iPod touch anymore. And it was a big moment for everyone. And most people were like, they still make iPods. Mm. But I heard from this giant contingent of Wall Street Journal readers that were like, we cannot believe they're doing this. I still have my iPod. It has this music. It's the best way to listen to music. And it, I, I love hearing about people's like early deep connection to technology, because the truth is, is that yes, everything has gotten better and smaller and faster. And now with AI, it can do so much more and predict so much more of what we want. But the core concepts of computers or these digital devices doing more for us in certain parts of our lives hasn't really changed. Joanna is a terrific person and a wonderful person to follow on social media. Read her work, watch her documentaries, because she can help explain AI in a way that all of us can understand. This past season, as well as the first two seasons of Everything Will Be Okay, has provided you with some wisdom, encouragement, and hope for your future. We've spoken with incomparable guests who, as they've shared, questioned if they were going to find their footing in their career and their personal lives. However, as you can see, 
everything will truly be okay. I think this was the best season of this podcast. And I would actually go back and listen to every single one of these. And taken together as a group, I would recommend that any graduate or anybody thinking about what they want to do next in their career, take the summer, re-listen to this series or recommend it to friends and family because you can get a lot out of all of these conversations. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. And listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.